Well, good morning again. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We look at uh, chapter 7 starting in verse 13 and going through the end of that chapter as we conclude uh, our look at the Sermon on the Mount uh, and as part of a larger sermon series of uh, pursuing Jesus through the Gospels and uh, we are uh, in the midst of, of a reading plan as a church where we're uh, reading a little bit out of the Gospels every day, and I hope that's been a blessing for you. If for some reason uh, you have not been doing that and would like to join us, there are still some of those reading uh, programs on the back, just a sheet, and you can pick one of those up and, and either try to catch up with us or just jump in where we're at right now, and uh, I know that that'll be a blessing to you as well. As we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, though, we have been watching as Jesus describes what a child of God looks like. He has not been telling us a list of things to accomplish, but rather he has been giving us a list of characteristics that are part already of who we are to be. They are desires that are to be inside of us already and things that come out of us as a result of a new heart that God gives us when we trust in Him for salvation. As, as the Word tells us, we become a new creation. And Jesus is describing what that new creation looks like. And as we draw to an end of end to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus now gives us a choice. He takes all of the, the things that he's been saying and says, okay, now you have a choice to make. Are you going to be a child of God or are you going to go a different direction? Are you going to hear all the things that I've been telling you and ignore them or are you going to do something? And he does that by giving us four separate kind of many choices in of themselves, but four separate pictures of what that looks like. And he, give, and he not only gives us those pictures, but he tells us what the outcome of each choice is. And so we're going to be looking at that together this morning. And so if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Again, starting in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and reading to the end of the chapter. Verse 13 starts this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false, te false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we're reminded in these verses, Lord, that we don't come here just simply for an academic exercise, Lord, that we don't come here simply just to hear and to gain knowledge, that we don't come here to be entertained, that our primary reason for coming is not even necessarily fellowship. But Lord, that you have a purpose for each one of us being here. And that as we hear your word, that it's not just for the gaining of knowledge, but rather that there is a choice that each one of us makes this morning. A choice of what we will do with Jesus Christ. Of what we will do with what he has commanded of us. Father, I pray this morning that you would open your word to us, Lord, that it would penetrate our heart, that it would be like a scalpel that would tear out and precisely cut those exact portions of our lives that need not be there, that would free bondages from sin and allow us to live the life that you've called us to live, a life of abundance in you. Father, thank you again for all that you do and all that you are doing. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, Jesus, as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is looking to now bring us to a point of decision. Like any good sermon, really, you go through and and there's lots of things to learn and lots of things to, to grab hold of. But at the end, we should come to a point of decision where we have to make some choices or a choice. And Jesus is doing the same thing here in his sermon. And he does so by giving us four choices or four examples. He gives us two gates. He gives us two teachers, two types of teachers. He gives us two disciples two types of disciples, and he gives us two foundations. And in each one of those, he gives a specific choice and a specific outcome that happens because of the choice we make. And as a result, we, when we put all four of those together, it goes into a larger choice, which is what are we going to do with Jesus? And how are we going to live our life? That first one we look at, the first choice or the first example that he comes to is two gates. He describes two gates here in verse, starting in verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he gives us two gates. He gives us the wide gate. 
Your uh, translation may say way. There's a little bit of uh, conversation on whether Jesus is describing the way to a gate or whether he's describing the gate itself when you look at the original language. But he says that there is a wide gate or a wide way. That way is easy, it's popular, and it's doomed. It's easy because the way to the wide gate, the way through the, the wide way, all you have to do is be yourself. All you have to do is just do what you've always done. Or on top of that, all you have to do is do what everyone else is doing. And if you just do that, then you will find your way to the wide gate no problem. It is a super highway. And as long as you stay in your lanes and go the direction you're going, you'll have no problem finding the wide gate. It's easy. No, no fuss, no muss. It's also popular. Because it's so easy, it's popular. It's, this is a common theme in all of humanity. That we like what is easy. We like what is the least amount of work for us. My daughter, I, can, I need to share all the sermon illustrations I can from her because she's going to get to an age where I can't do this anymore. But my daughter, my daughter is learning how to crawl. But she hates it because it's a lot of work. Like, she has to army crawl. She hasn't figured out the knees up thing yet. And she, man, she, but she wants to chase the cat so bad. And she army crawls and doesn't get very far. But she's figured out that if she holds on to mom and dad's hands, she can walk and it's much faster and it's much easier. And she will, even though she knows how to crawl and be mobile in herself, she would rather sit and cry and wait for us to come do something for her. It's human nature for us to pursue the easy. And so it is the way to the wide gate is a popular thing. Not only that, but there's a problem. The wide gate may be easy. The wide gate may be popular. But the wide gate and the way that it leads is doomed. He says that it is the way to destruction. Why? Because we understand in Scripture that we are sinful people. That we all make mistakes. That's not a hard thing for us to comprehend. Even if you don't know anything about the Bible, even if you have never uh, had any do dealings with Scripture or with God or with Jesus, have nothing want to do with it, it is not hard for us to understand that we have all made mistakes and that mistakes have consequences. Consequences here on earth depend on the level of mistake you've done. If you break a rule of your parents, there's a consequence. Maybe you get grounded. Maybe you get something taken away. Maybe it's a little more serious than that. But there's a consequence. If you break the law, there's a consequence for that. If you steal something or if you murder someone or if you do something even crazier than that, there's a consequence to that. In the same way, when we break... What God says is the law, there is a consequence, but instead of being a temporary one, it is an eternal one. Jesus says that it is destructive. It is eternal separation from God 
in a place of eternal torment. Jesus makes no bones about this. He talks more about hell than He talks about heaven in the New Testament and in the Gospels. He wants to warn us of of what is awaiting us if we don't deal with the problem of sin. If we don't deal with the fact that we all are guilty. If If we choose to ignore it, if we choose to take the easy path, that path only leads to one place. But there's a second gate. There's a narrow gate. The narrow gate is a little bit different. It says in verse 14, the narrow gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The narrow gate, in contrast to the wide gate, is difficult, it's elusive, and it is eternal. It is eternal. It's difficult because it requires us to admit some things and to do some things that are contrary to ourselves. It requires us to admit that we are wrong. We don't like doing that. It requires us to admit that we're not perfect. Even though we understand mentally that we all make mistakes, we don't like to admit that we're guilty of those mistakes. You just have to look at a child for this. How many times have you seen a child do something incredibly wrong? They steal or they punch their their sibling or they lie and you ask them, who did this? I mean, they could have a broken jar beside them. They could have the jelly all over their hands and their face and you could say, who did this? And a child will say, not me. (laughs) I don't know who did it. (laughs) The cat, yeah. I don't know who did it. Right? We've all experienced that. We've all seen it. We are the same way. We know we make mistakes. We know that we do things that are wrong. And yet when God says, who did this? Our first choice is to say it was somebody else. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis. In Genesis, God finds Adam and Eve after they've ate of the fruit, the original sin. And he says, who did this? And Adam's first inclination is to say, it's the woman who you made me. And Eve's, and he, when he asked Eve who did this, her first inclination is to say it was the snake. We love to pass the buck. And so to admit that we have actually made a mistake, that we have sinned, is a difficult thing. Not only that, but we look at the way that God calls us to live after that and we see difficult things. He calls us to forgive. And to forgive in an unconditional way. That's hard. <laughs> That's incredibly difficult. He calls us to love our enemies and to serve them. It's not easy. He calls us to fellowship together in a thing called church and to love one another and to serve one another. Church is not always easy. It brings great joy and great fellowship at times, but there are other times that church is hard. He calls us to do difficult things. And because of that, the narrow gate is elusive. Many do not find it. Not because it's impossible to find, but because they don't want to find it. My dad used to tell me all the time that phrase, that grand phrase, if it was a snake, it would have bit you. He would send me for a tool or he would send me for something and I would say, oh, I can't find it. The reality is, is I never wanted to find it in the first place. 
Because if I found the rake, then I would have to use the rake. If I found the post hole diggers, I would have to use the post hole diggers. And so conveniently, they were hard to find when they were right in front of my face. The narrow gate's the same way. The narrow gate is not impossible to find. But it is elusive for many because they don't want to find it at all. This is the sad truth of our faith. The sad truth is is that many will deny Christ. Many want to walk their own way. Many many may even want Jesus so they have so-called fire insurance, but they're not willing to actually follow the path that, that leads. They're happy to say they believe in Jesus, happy to say they love Jesus, happy to say that they are saved and going to heaven, but when it comes to actually obeying Him, that's a whole other thing. It is elusive. Not impossible, but it is elusive for many. But the amazing thing is that it is eternal. It leads to life. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Jesus tells us that he has called us into life abundantly. That when we follow this hard way, that what we will find is so much greater than anything the world has to offer. I love love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have these three guys who are in Babylon. Some of you are thinking veggie tales. Just stop. Well, you have these three guys living in, in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue. And he tells everyone that they have to worship the statue. And if they don't, that they will die. Meshach and his three friends, or two friends, sorry, his two friends decide they're going to make the difficult choice. They decide they're going to make the difficult choice that they are going to serve the one true God and they will not bow. And so they are arrested and they are threatened with death in a fiery furnace. And their response to that is one I pray that I will have every day. It says, they they respond in essence, our God is able to deliver us from that furnace. He is able to save us, but, (laughs) but if he does not, we will still not serve you. You see, I think we make the mistake sometimes as Christians into thinking that the narrow gate and the gate towards Christianity and towards life is always filled with blessing. And if we obey, then good things follow and success follows. That that if we obey this Word of God, that then we will have more people, that we will have a bigger budget, that we will have whatever the case, whatever, however we want to define success, that there will be blessing that follows. But the reality is, is that's not always how God defines success. Sometimes God defines success just in the act of obedience. These three guys said the the act of obedience is success, and whether God saves us or not doesn't really matter. 
We could tell countless missionary stories of missionaries that have gone and have died on the field and the world would look at their lives and their death and say, what a waste. But God sees success in the obedience. We need to be careful of how we measure success and what we claim to be blessing. Not that God doesn't do wonderful things for us. I'm not saying that at all. But we need to be very careful that we don't do what I call, we don't drink prosperity gospel light. Many of us hear the prosperity gospel and we think, oh, it's the idea that if you have enough faith that you'll get a bigger car or a bigger house. And most of us here would say, no, nope, that's wrong. You know, if you have perfect faith that you, you'll never be sick, you're like that. We would flat out say, no, that's not what we see in Scripture. But we take the, we take the light version. We say, oh, but if you do this, then you, know, you won't be sick as much. If you do this, then oh, you'll be safe. If you do this, then oh, that you, all of your wants and desires will be met. You be careful with that. We have an enemy who loves to make things safe. And we have an enemy that loves to make things easy. And he is capable of, he is the God of the wide road. God, little g. He is the God of the wide road, of the wide gate. And he makes things as easy as possible to take us the wrong direction. So we need to be aware. We need to be aware of what's going on. Again, not that God doesn't bless, not that God doesn't care for his children. We need to make sure that we're defining success and we're defining blessing as God defines them, not as the world defines it. So we have the wide gate and the narrow gate. Which way will we take? They both have extreme consequences. What's the second choice? Second choice is two teachers. Two teachers. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So we have two teachers. The first teacher are false prophets. They are wolves. They are bad fruit. And their teaching leads to death. Not only for them, but those who follow them. It tells us, the Bible tells us in Revelations that there is one, there will be teachers come who will preach a false gospel and they will preach whatever people want to hear. What tickles the ears is, is the Bible way of phrasing it. They preach what is easy. They preach what is uplifting. They preach what is, takes no commitment to follow. But Jesus warns that they are wolves. Wolves are most dangerous when they are hungry and when they seek what is after their own belly. That's false teachers. They may say the right things at the right, at sometimes at the right times, but ultimately when you watch their life, they are out to gather what they can for themselves. And when you watch their life carefully, you start to observe bad fruit. They do not produce healthy disciples. They do not produce self-control, joy, hope. None of that is evident in them. And Jesus warns that they themselves and those that follow them have one conclusion. 
In verse 19, it says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A very ominous warning for those that would attempt to take the gospel and use it for their own good, for their own selfish desires. A very ominous warning for those that would follow them. On the other hand, there is the true teacher. The true teacher. We don't see it so much here, but we, it's easy to contrast the false prophets with the one good teacher. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes Himself as a good shepherd. A good shepherd. That He watches over the flock that has been given to them and they know His voice and they know how to follow Him at wherever He leads them. And that He loves them to the point that He lays down His life for them. And we think of that, we think of the cross, and rightfully so. But I don't think we often take in the entire grandeur of what is happening there. That the God of all the universe, who has created all things, who is worthy of all worship, of every angel, of every tongue on earth, who had all the riches of heaven, stepped into flesh, suffered in ways that we suffer, and and lived innocently so that He may voluntarily and innocently lay down His life for us. That is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, the true teacher, produces good fruit. He produces good disciples, healthy, mature disciples who bear good fruit themselves. Hope and joy and self-control and the rest. And he produces life. He produces life. And life eternal. And so we must ask ourselves in this kind of second choice, who are we going to follow? Who are we going to follow? Will we follow those who simply make it easy on us, are easy to listen to, are easy to go and to be entertained, or will we listen to the true teacher, the good shepherd? And though his teachings sometimes are hard, his words produce life. Third choice, two disciples, two types of disciples. We see in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the winds winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. If you would, turn really quickly over to Matthew. uh, Just a little bit farther in Matthew to Matthew 25. I want to read to you another passage where Jesus says something very similar. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed Me. I was naked and you clothed Me. I was sick and you visited Me. And I was in prison and you came to Me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Two types of disciples. You have, in both cases, you have those who will stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord. And yet there are some who will go into eternity of paradise, and you have others that go into eternal doom. This is probably some of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. They should, they should, at times, trouble us. We should reckon with them. We should ask questions like, who am I? There are two disciples, though. The, there are the religious. There are the bl- they are the blind, the proud, and the cursed. They are blind... Jesus says, you didn't do these things. And they say, when did we see you? And they completely missed everyone. They completely missed every opportunity that they had around them to minister. Or they did it on their terms. Why are they blind? Because they were never His to begin with. They're, they're blind because they don't have the characters that... characters. Uh, descriptors that Jesus has talked about through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so they don't see Him. Because they're not children of God, they don't see those around them that need help. But man, they are proud of what they have done. You look at what it says there back in chapter 7. It says, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, not do mighty works in Your name? Man, they are quick to say, I did this and this and this and this. I have earned favor. The problem is you don't earn the favor of God. You are either His child and have favor or you are not His child and do not have His favor. You cannot earn it. So they are blind, they are proud, and they ultimately are cursed. They still find themselves under the guilt, guilty verdict of their own sin. But then you have the children of God. They are aware, they are humble, and they are blessed. Because they're the children of God, they've had their eyes open so that they see other people the way that God sees them. And they just naturally serve. They naturally have a desire to help and to assist. And they don't think about it. I love when he says, you've done this and this and this. And they're like, when did we do that? Like it doesn't even dawn on them because it's just ingrained in who they are. They're humble. They... They don't brag about what they've done. They don't point to to things and say, this is what I've accomplished, and this is what I've accomplished, and this is what I've accomplished. They simply say, I'm yours. My hope is in you, Jesus. My My salvation is in you, Jesus. 
And because they are His children, they are blessed. They are blessed. As I was thinking through this, probably one, of the, one example that came to my mind that is in first, or sorry, in Second Samuel chapter one. Second Samuel chapter one, you have kind of an, an interesting story. In Second Samuel chapter one, you have this guy who comes to King David, or David. David's not king yet, actually. And he comes to David and he says, I saw Saul on the field of battle. And Saul was injured, and Saul begged me to kill him. And so I've killed Saul, and I've taken the crown, and now I've come to give you the crown. You're the king. The interesting thing is it's a lie. If you go back to the last chapter of 1 Samuel, right before it, what you find out is that Saul killed himself. That Saul knew that the battle was coming upon him and Saul didn't want someone else to kill him, so Saul had killed himself. So what had actually happened is this guy had been running from the battle and he had, fought, he had stumbled across Saul's body and he found the crown laying there and grabbed the crown and then took it to David thinking that if he brought the crown to David and told David, I killed Saul, that he would gain favor with David. What he did instead was that he made it clear he didn't know David at all. He didn't know David at all. You see, David, David trusted in God. David had been anointed as a teenager to become the next king. But David did not try to claim kingship. He did not try to force his way into kingship. But rather, he trusted that God would place him there in due time. And he respected Saul. In fact, he loved Saul's brother or Saul's son. Saul's son, Jonathan, was his best friend, and he wanted what was best for Jonathan. And he didn't know how this was going to work out. He's like, I don't want, he didn't want Jonathan to die. He didn't know how he was going to become king, but he trusted God in it. So when this guy, and he had opportunities to do just that, he had opportunities to kill Saul. And he said, No, that's the God's anointed. I'm not going to do that. God will make me king when it's time. And so when this guy runs up to him and says, and he thinks, hey, I'm going to gain favor with the king. He's going to make me a general. I'm going to be rich. And he runs up to, to David and he says, hey, I killed Saul for you and here's his crown. He proves that he doesn't know David at all. He doesn't know the future king at all. David's response, by the way, first is mourning. He grieves over the loss of Saul and Jonathan. His second thing is to say, how dare you touch the king's anointed and the guy is actually executed on the spot for a lie, for a desire to find favor. Those that come to Jesus, those that come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? It's not that what they had done was bad. It's what they had done it in their own power for their own sake that they may find favor with a king. And what they did instead was prove that they don't know the king at all. They had gone their own way and done their own thing and tried to make their own ministry rather than doing that which God would have them to do. Rather than doing it out of a heart of a child of God. 
We need to struggle with these verses and ask, do I come to Jesus seeking my own will? Do I come to Jesus seeking favor because of the things that I've done? Do I come to Jesus thinking that somehow I can earn something by doing good things? Or do I come to Jesus knowing that He's the only one that can save me and then out of that I will do whatever He asks me to do? I'll go where He wants me to go. We need to struggle with these things and know that, know that as we do, that God gives grace and mercy for those that seek Him. Last choice. We have two foundations. Two foundations. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, not, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. Two foundations. The first foundation is the sand. The sand is easy, it is unstable, and it leaves things in ruins. The word there for sand, when we go back and look at the actual word that Jesus looks to, it doesn't, it's not picturing sand like a beach. Like in my mind, when I read this verse, that's usually where my brain goes. Like you're building on a beach. That's not really what it's talking about. It's talking about loose earth that was often found in the valley. It was, it was in the low places. And so when he talks about building on the sand, he's talking about building on the loose earth that's in the valley. And building in the valley was easy. Building in the valley means you didn't have to, to take the lumber anywhere. Building in the valley means that you were close to the water source. Building in the valley means that you were close to the crops that you might plant. Building in the valley seemed good. It seemed like a good idea. It's way easier to build on the loose earth than to build on the rock. But the problem is, is that that loose earth, that sand, is unstable. Not only is it unstable, but it is in a horrible location. And the first rule of real estate is location, location, location. Because the problem with the valley is the valley is also where the river's at. And when it rains, all of the water comes to the valley. And the river goes up. And there's nothing to protect your house at that point. It's going down. And it's taking everything with it. It's not just destroying your house. It is wiping it off the face of the earth. Oh, it's easier. It's easier to build there. It's easier maybe even to live there. But it doesn't produce much good when the storm comes. The second one, the second foundation is the rock. The rock is higher up. The rock is, is on the side of the mountain. It's on the side of the cliff. It means that you're going to have to haul materials up there and it's going to be a little bit difficult, more, more difficult in building it. It means that you might have to walk a little farther for water. It means you might have to walk a little farther to get to your crops. 
Life might be a little bit difficult on the rock, but the rock is secure. The rock is secure from the flooding. It's secure when the storms come. It's secure-er from those who would try to invade. Because you're in the high spot. And so because of that, it lasts. And it lasts eternally. Jesus makes the same comparison to His words. He says, if you hear My words and do not do them, that's easier. It's easier to to hear the Word of God and to not do anything with it. It's easy to read the Bible and then just treat it like a textbook and lay it down and walk away from it. And to never change. To never let it impact how you live. That's easy. The problem is, is that when the storm comes, where do you go? You see, in the middle of the storm is not the time to find shelter. In the middle of the storm is not the time to figure out what you need to do. Because when the, when, by the time the storm comes, it's too late. I had a mentor that used to tell me, the middle of the storms of life is not a good time to figure out if you know how to pray or not. The middle of the storms in life, that's not a good time to figure out where that verse really is. You need to know Him before that. Then you can weather the storm well. Doesn't mean that God doesn't sometimes use storms to get us to those places, but, but it is so much better for us if we know it beforehand. If we've heard the words of God and then we've done it beforehand, we've built well beforehand, so that when the storms of life come, we are better able to manage them, better able to guide ourselves through or, or to follow His guidance through them. So again, we're left with two choices, or with a choice. Will we build in the easy spots? Will we build in the hard spot? Will we build on the rock? Will we obey His Word or will we ignore it? Four choices. Two gates. Two teachers to follow. Two types of disciples to be. Two foundations to build our life upon. And it all leads to one decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? And how are you going to live your life in that? Those that heard the Sermon on the Mount have an interesting response. It says in verse 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. They were astonished at His teaching. They had made their choice. They thought he was really neat. They thought he spoke really well. They really liked his analogies. They really liked the picture that he made. They really liked the kind of life that he talked about. They were impressed with his vocabulary. They were impressed with his speaking ability. They were astonished but they had no commitment. We're going to see later in our reading in John, Jesus has taught the Sermon on the Mount. He has performed all these miracles. But when it's time to make a decision, all the people leave Him. All the people walk away from Him. All of these people that were astonished are like, nah, we're good. We're going back home. 
Friend, we can, we can sit here and we can hear the Word of God. We can read the Word of God. We can do good things. We can be astonished at God and never make a commitment to follow Him. Never make a commitment for Him to be our Savior and Lord. And at the end of the day, we come to the Lord and His throne and we say, Lord, Lord, didn't I follow You? Didn't I, didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? And He says, I never knew You. The crowd made their decision that day. Many of them. And many of them said, I'll take the easy way. So the question comes to us. What will be your decision with all that he says in the Sermon on the Mount? What will be your decision on Jesus Christ? Will you hear his words and say, I'm going to follow him? He is God in flesh just as he claimed to be. He lived a perfect life just as he claimed he would. He died for me. And now I am going to make him my Lord and I'm going to follow him in everything that I do. I'm going to allow him to run before me and allow him to run my life. To hear his word and not just to simply make it academic, but to make it a part of my heart and then to act upon it. Or are we just going to stay the same that we've always stayed and say, that sounds great. I'm astonished at how clever Jesus was. I'm astonished that he did all these miracles. That's really cool. Time to go home. Choices. They have eternal consequences. This morning, what's the choice that we make? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know that you've placed your faith and trust in him, but maybe you've just gotten into some bad habits of just hearing the word, whether it's whether it's on a Sunday morning or whether it's in your quiet time, you've just gotten in some bad habits of hearing the word and then not acting. Making Christianity academic. Making Jesus a knowledge, just someone to learn knowledge from, but never to really do anything with it. Maybe this morning you just need to say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry and I, I want to act now. I, I, need, I want to be different. I want to follow you. Maybe this morning you have never had a relationship with him and, and this morning we, the word of God like just it's heavy on your heart this morning because you know that you have never made a choice about what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. You've never, you've never come to him and said, yeah, I've, I've made mistakes and I need forgiveness. You've never said, yes, I want you to be Lord of my life and this morning you know that in all of these choices, you're following the wide path. You're following the false teacher of the world. You're following, you're, you're, you're the wrong disciple. You've built your foundation in the wrong spot. And you would say, that's me. And, and God is just working on your heart. And there's a heavy weight on your heart this morning. Here's the good news. God extends an invitation for you this morning to change all that in a moment. To give forgiveness, to give hope, to give joy, to remove fear. All you have to do is talk to Him. 
If you don't know what that looks like, I'd love to talk to you. Come grab me. If you want to know, if you say, yeah, I, I've done that, what's next? Come talk to me. We'd love to, love to show you what's next and what he has for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, you leave us little wiggle room. <laughs> Father, we love to find the loopholes. We love to find the way to the easy path if we can. But Lord, you leave no room for that. Lord, you call us into obedience. You call us into making a choice. And Lord, the great thing is that you give us the grace and the faith to do that. Father, I pray that we would desire to be people of action. That we would pursue you diligently. Lord, that we would confess faithfully, Lord, that we have all made mistakes. That we are all in need of forgiveness. That we all are in need of looking more like you and less like the world. Lord, that we would not allow your words today to go in one ear and out the other. But that we would make a commitment today. Lord, I pray for the one this morning. Lord, that you are heavy on their heart. Lord, you are calling their name. That they know that, that they have never made a decision for you. They know that they have taken the easy way their whole life. Even if, even if their life has been difficult, Lord, that they have never made a decision for you. Lord, this morning, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the forgiveness that you offer, to the life that you offer to the goodness that you offer and that they would choose you this morning. Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning you can...